Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Castration, castration, castration. Now, traditionally, when we think about this term that we've been talking so much about in the recent lectures, we think of these two moments, these two moments that I've described in our series on 16 and moving forward. It's kind of like unary trait one and unary trait two. There's first the no of the father, and I'm putting first in quotation marks here. And then comes the name of the father. So the no is prohibitive is subjugating, and the name is positioning and subjectifying. What you have here, in other words, is an original, again in quotation marks, primordial so-called first moment in the no of the father, the no of prohibition and subjugation, and then this second moment of positionality, of subjectification, this second moment as Lacan himself dubs it on page 125. And whenever Lacan says second, first, and the like, you got to start thinking also about repetition, which, as you might imagine, is where we're headed here. Together, these two unary trait moments, and if you want to think of this as like two subsets in the set known as the unary trait, that might be a better way to think about it. They're two moments in the same experience. Together, these operations of prohibition and positionality, subjugation and subjectification, the know of the father and the name of the father, they mark the subject as one, with the one, in other words, as a barred subject. And this is exactly the topic and the passage that we were working on, where you have the whole one, capital O, versus the being marked one, lowercase o, having that stroke, that furrow, that cut, that insignia, the list of terms goes on for that bar that you see in the barred subject. That's what we're talking about here. The logic, though, is what's new. The logic of this two-part set known as castration is the important one that we're developing here. The logic, again, is one of repetition, which is to say retro-efficacy. It's one of the final terms in Seminar 16, and it's one of the through lines of Seminar 17. This repetition as retroaction, as retro-efficacy. Which brings us back to that second moment. The second moment is the retroactive cause of the first moment, which is its effect. This is the habit of mind that Lacan is inviting us into throughout Seminar 17, where cause and effect effectively trade places as we typically understand them, where the second moment becomes the cause of the first. And because they are strewn out in time, it's a retroactive cause. 
Remember what we're doing here with final cause. At the end of the sentence, at the end of the book, at the end of the film, that's when meaning is retroactively assigned to all that preceded it. The cause of the meaning of the movie doesn't arrive until the end of the film. Again, the second moment that Lacan is referring to on page 125 of Seminar 17 is the retroactive cause of the first moment, a first moment here which is the effect of that second moment. So, the name of the Father is the retroactive cause of the know of the Father. Positionality is the retroactive cause of prohibition. Subjectification is the retroactive cause of subjugation. This second moment in the here and now of a second moment of repetition is the site at which an original, primordial, and so-called first moment appears. It's where that appearance is effected. This is the logic that we've been working on, and here we're trying to sum it up as we verge on the end of Seminar 17. The point I'm making here about castration, 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 and these two moments, is that it's only complete when the newfound brothers, recall what Lacan is doing here with Totem and Taboo, reaffirm for themselves the father of the primal horde's prohibition against enjoying his ladies. The father's you must, as a mythical primordial law, prohibition, a thou shalt not, recall this as the no of the father. It only exists as a figure of loss, hence the discussion we've been having about the tombstone, in the symbolic order that is activated and inhabited by the son's reaffirmation, their repetition of this law, as their own desire. His you must becomes their we will. And the question here is what is the effect of their we will on the status of his you must? Or if you just want a riff on this, it could have been found somewhere in Hannah Arendt's work, but it's quite simple. It's the living who make the dead immortal. The son's reaffirmation or repetition of the father's prohibition has a retroactive effect of determining the so-called symbolic father as this classic Lacanian agent of castration, as in fact the real father, and his prohibitive no as a real operation that is introduced through the incidence of the son's signifiers, and all at a later date. And I'm more or less quoting here from page 128. This logic carries forward and has been struck in each of our conceptual configurations of late, just as the agency of the master, for instance, qua S1, is an effect of the signifying process that marks the truth of his subjectivity as that of a barred subjectivity, qua this barred S. So also is the father as the lost, impossible, real agent of castration, as Lacan is repeating here, an effect of the son's repetitive 
retroactive, and properly symbolic as hell act of accepting his prohibition as their own. Isn't this exactly the same logic that we've been working with around sexual jouissance relative to surplus enjoyment? So you can see this thinking around cause and effect playing out in these different configurations, the symbolic and the real, the symbolic father and the real father, the agency of the master relative to the truth of his subjectivity, sexual jouissance and surplus jouissance. You can plug each dyad into the same final cause with retroactive efficacy logic. That's why it's so important to wrap our heads around this logic. Let me see if I can give us a main claim here. And really, it's a building on a quote straight from Lacan, page 124. Castration is an essentially symbolic function, he says. But what we're adding here is that its result, its effect, is real. So castration is a symbolic operation. However, its effect is real. The father delivers as speech and act alike. That's why I chose this term deliver for us from the classical canon of oratory known as delivery. The father delivers as speech and act, as pronouncement and product, the unary trait. But it's the sons who repeat it, who repeat his pronouncement, who pick up the product. And it's their repetitions that mark this delivery as lost. It's only as a signifier of loss, after the fact, a real impossible void or break, that this delivery appears as an original moment. <clears throat> and again, it's precisely here, in terms of this loss, that surplus enjoyment, which has occupied us so much throughout this seminar, takes body. That's a very interesting expression that Lacan uses. He repeats it again. We're going to page 124 here. Surplus enjoyment takes body in terms of this figure, this signifier, this declaration, this statement of loss. That's where it takes body. Such a great way of thinking about how surplus enjoyment emerges. Now, you've often heard me say that in the beginning was the word, and that word was no. Regardless of what the first word was, that you heard, learned, mastered, etc., its function, its effect was no. And here I'm alluding to prohibition, to that first retroactively effected moment, that origin of castration. Here's what we're adding, though. This original, primordial pronouncement of no in the beginning, it is not the cause of signifying articulations that follow. On the contrary, it is the impossible real name, figure, statement, declaration, signifier, choose your term, of loss that is effected by signifying articulation. And thoroughly, completely, utterly, can't emphasize this enough, bound up within signifying articulation. Let's be categorical here. And I want to do so by quoting Lacan directly, who doesn't seem to hesitate on this front either. There are no other acts than those that refer to the effects of this signifying articulation 
and include its entire problematic. That's the next page, page 125. A problematic, I believe, that is well summarized in everything you already know about Lacan's iconic 1960s definition of the signifier as that which represents the subject to another signifier. That has to be like the 300th time that hypothesis, that definition of the signifier has been said in this series. It's important because that's what Lacan means when he says signifying articulation and it's entire problematic. The entire problematic he's referring to is right there with the hypothesis that the signifier is what represents the subject to or for another signifier. Everything you know about that topology of the subject can tell you everything you need to know about the entire problematic of signification that Lacan is here referring to. And his point is that the real is among those elements that are bound up within the entire problematic of signifying articulation. There are no outside acts or pronouncements other than those that refer to the effects of this signifying articulation. There ain't no escape, is his point. There is no outside text. The real father is no exception. The real father, as the agent of castration, is a construction of language. It is nothing other than an effect of language and has no other real. This is Lacan, page 27. I'm not just coming out of the blue with this stuff. It is straight out of the seminar that we've been studying. The real father, which Lacan never seems to tire of explaining to us, is the agent of castration. What we're adding here is that it is retroactively effected as real when the sons pick up the real father's prohibition and take it as their own. This efficacy of the real father as an agent of castration is a construction of language, Lacan says. It is nothing other than an effect of language and has no other real. There is no other real than that which is an effect of language. Check it out, page 127, read it for yourself. Okay, so where then do we find this so-called real father in Seminar 17? I've suggested that you can locate it in certain places. Lacan's got another riff on this. You can find it on the page in Seminar 17 and nowhere else is what he's suggesting here. As one among many signifiers in the sea that is this text known as Seminar 17, that's all the delta of impotence truly is. It's a signifier on the page. Take page 108, for example, in Seminar 17. That's what he's getting at here. He's got this really clever riff about this as well. When he begins chapter 11 in Seminar 17 by saying, if there is any chance of grasping something called the real, it is nowhere other than on the blackboard. He's making a point about writing there, of course, but he's also making a broader point about language use. The real is not absent from language use. In fact, that's precisely how it shows up. It is a figure of absence that is in fact present, presented within the field of the symbolic. Again, 
part and parcel of the same logic that we've been wrapping our heads around for the past few lectures. But I think we can be even more precise, more precise at least than all this blackboard business at the start of chapter 11. The entire problematic of language that's always already there and always already efficacious is also always already working retroactively. And I think you can see Lacan spelling this out on page 155 to bring us full force into chapter 11 again. Page 155 has a really good riff here on how the unary trait operates. To be sure, the unary trait is never alone. Therefore, the fact that it repeats itself, that it repeats itself in never being the same, is properly speaking the order itself, the order in question because language is present and already there, already efficacious. There's a lot to hear in that passage, not least of which is Lacan's emphasis on the unary trait as repeated in a second moment that would retroactively effect its first as original, but also that the second moment is not just a repetition in a naive way of thinking about it. It's always also a repetition with a difference. It repeats itself but is also never the same. That's the thing about the unary trait. It is iterative and differential. Repetition with a difference of the unary trait is what he's talking about here. And what we're adding is this retro-efficacy that comes with that repetition. So you can have a one, and then you can repeat it as a one. Lacan's point, though, is every repetition of one is always a one plus objea, a one plus little a, a repetition with a difference. So if you were going to write this out in a way that would make it more or less accessible, you could have one of these fuzzy little Lacanian formulas where you have what is to be repeated, and then the act of its repetition. The act of its repetition, yes, it reinscribes the one, but it also comes with something else, not just because it comes at a later date. A one plus a, and that's how Lacan is always thinking here. Every repetition introduces a difference. So what we've got here is a one plus a that retroactively marks the first one as its origin, but also in so doing introduces an element of difference here, where the unary trait repeated, that one, that slash, that bar, always has to have something else added to it. Now you can go through the last chapters of Seminar 17 and you can see what he's doing with all the one plus a. And you can also go back to our series on 16 if you want some help with that, because that's the logic that he's working out there. Again, though, for us, conceptually speaking, what's at stake here is a question of final causes and retro effects. Lacan seems to be aware of this. He knows that's the bit he's chomping at. Check it out. The very next sentences in chapter 11 on page 155. Our first rule is never to seek the origins of language if only because they are demonstrated well enough through their effects. 
So there's another passage earlier on in the seminar, really at the start, where Lacan basically tries to inhabit the minds of his audience members and kind of like channel them. And he's like, Dr. Lacan, why are we exploring the origins of language? Can't, don't we have any limits here? Why can't we just stop and just move on? We're talking, we're trying to learn how to be psychoanalysts here, blah, blah, blah. Here Lacan is queuing that back up again here. Our first rule is never to seek the origins of language. Why? Because you don't fucking have to. You want to see the origins of language? Just take a look at all of the linguistic effects that start popping every time you open your mouth. The origins of language are fully present in the here and now of language use. This is also Benjamin's point about origin, which you've heard me cue up before from his second dissertation on Trauerspiel tragedy. Genesis is not the same as origin. An origin, like a primal scene, like a repressed trauma, is something that only appears and shows up and can be seen, marked, indexed at a later date. Origin is a retroactive effect. Unlike classic understandings of genesis, like a genetic moment that would be a one that led to a two that led to a three and so forth, Lacan's point is that threes are always going back and shaping and indexing their ones. And that's the new way of thinking that he's introducing here throughout the 60s, but especially as we get toward the end of his thought in the 1960s here in the early 70s around repetition and retroaction. Next sentence on page 155, in case we didn't get it the first time around. The further we push back, the further back we push their effects, the more these origins emerge. The effects of language are retroactive, precisely in that it is as language develops that it manifests what it is qua want to be. Reading that one again. The further back we push their effects, the effects of language, the more these origins emerge. The effects of language are, in other words, retroactive, precisely in that it is as language develops that it manifests what it is qua want to be. Now that last part is something different. That's something we haven't heard from him in a minute. What are we to make of this want to be at the end of a passage that very firmly reiterates his point about cause and effect. Final cause and its retroactive effects in the field of language. But what's up with this want-to-be business? Here's what I would suggest. Between the fact of being marked one that we've discussed and the fantasy of becoming a whole one, recall that passage we read in our last lecture, that's where we find this want to be. It's somewhere on the spectrum between being marked one as a fact of life and the dream of becoming a whole one. Along that spectrum is this want to be. It's a field of lack, of desire, of, in this seminar, surplus enjoyment. Exactly as we have defined each experience in this series and in its predecessors. This want to be is right there between the fact that we are each marked one by the unary trait in all the complexities that we've been discussing and the fact that this inaugurates a fundamental fantasy that someday, somehow, some way, we may eventually become a whole one. 
In between those two is this want to be, as an experience of lack, of desire, of surplus enjoyment, all right there together. I think it's interesting that when you read this want to be at the end of Seminar 17, particularly around chapter 11, it is again the discourse of the master, especially in relation to the analyst that Lacan invokes in an attempt to illustrate how this want to be gets figured and played out. It's here that we turn next. The first usage of this want to be in Seminar 17 that I could find is on page 151, just a few pages before the passage that we were looking at on page 155. It starts with section 1 of chapter 11. I mentioned that affect, not effect, affect, by which the speaking being in a discourse finds itself determined as an object. It has to be said that this object is not nameable. If I try to call it surplus jouissance, this is only a device of nomenclature. Now recall what he's doing here with affect, objea, and anxiety. He's been kind of queuing up Seminar 10 and the work that he is doing there with this kind of enigmatic object related to, to anxiety. Anxiety being not without an object is how he puts it in order to cue up the object of anxiety as objea, as lack, as not an object, but an emptiness, an opening instead. What object is it that results from this effect, not affect, effect of a certain discourse? We know nothing about this object except that it is the cause of desire. That is to say that, strictly speaking, it manifests itself as want to be. There is therefore no being that is thereby determined. So he's striking a difference here between being, as being a whole one, and this want to be, this experience of lack that is the cause of desire when you are marked one. Which brings us back to that passage that we've been working with. This passage on page 154 with regard to what we grasp in psychoanalytic discourse. The unifying capital O1, the whole capital O1, is not what is involved in identification. The pivotal identification, the major identification, is the unary trait that we're discussing here. It is capital B being marked one. Itals on the little O1. Being marked one is different from the fantasy of becoming a unified whole one. Now, this is as far as we've gotten with the passage on page 154. Reading on brings us one step closer to understanding how this want-to-be figures, and not just anywhere, but specifically in the discourse of the master and its relation to the discourse of the analyst. Prior, emphasis here on prior, we go on to say, Prior to the promotion of any being by virtue of a singular one, of what bears the mark from this moment forward, the effect of language arises, as does the first affect. So, prior to any desirous 
split subject that would emerge from being marked one in the experience known as castration, you see two things. First, the effects of language. They're already there. They're already working prior to the emergence of any sort of a subject. So also is the first affect, namely obja. So what you have here is prior to the promotion of any subjectivity, of any agential position, by virtue of a singular one that would occasion this subjectivity, of what would bear this mark of subjectivity from that moment forward. So what he's talking about here is he's saying, prior to that crucial moment when language introduces the mark of subjectivity into the living individual, as we've discussed in this series, prior to all that, you can see the effect of language arising, as well as its first affect, namely obja. This is what the formulas I wrote on the blackboard are saying. So here again, we're getting into a little bit of one plus one and all this kind of business. You can read it on your own. It's at the bottom of page 154. What I like is where he goes next. Somewhere, this something that the cogito only marks is isolated, also with the unary trait. That one can suppose that the I am thinking has in order to say, therefore, I am. So he's fucking with the old Cartesian statement, cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore, I am. I am thinking, therefore, I am one. Now, this is some classic Lacan, straight out of the early to mid-1950s forward. We've been over it in previous series. Rest assured, it amounts to a pronouncement of the unconscious as the condition of possibility for conscious thought. That's what he's up to here. It's precisely where you don't think you're thinking that all your greatest thoughts occur, namely in the field of the unconscious. And it's precisely where you believe yourself to be thinking, in the field of the ego, in the field of conscious self-awareness, that rest assured, you ain't. That's what this amounts to. He's coming back to that topic. He's queuing up the cogito that Descartes would obsess about. And you can see at the top of page 155, Descartes comes up. Somewhere this something that the cogito only marks is isolated, also with the unary trait that one can suppose the I am thinking has in order to say, therefore, I am. Check it out. Here, the effect of division is already marked by an I am, which elides the I am marked by the one. So prior to any statement of oneness, any statement of I am, there is a being marked by one. In other words, a division of the subject. Isn't this precisely what we see on the left-hand side of the discourse of the master? The master, as an S1, rises up and says, I am him. I am the father of signifiers. I speak and the world works. I am the unifying one. Hence, the master signifier. I am the whole one. I am being, I am one. And what we've seen and what the discourse of the master is designed to show is that that agency, those pronouncements are effect structures occasioned. They are opportunity structures seized by somebody, occasioned by a more original cause. And that cause is one of castration of being marked one. 
It's because the master is always already marked one, struck with the, with the signifier, barred, split by the unary trait. In other words, by a truth that you see in the bottom left-hand quadrant of the discourse of the master, namely that of split subjectivity. That is what allows him to then rise up and say, I am one. This is what he hides. This is what he ignores. This is what the master represses, is the fact that they are already marked by the one. So the master rises up and says, I am. And what that elides is the more truthful statement, which is, if I am, it's I am marked by the one. That's what Lacan is queuing up here at the bottom of 154 and 155. So you don't need to go all the way back into his critique of the cogito and his critique of Descartes and kind of modern philosophical pronouncements prior to Hegel. You don't need all that. All you need to remember is that in order for the master to cry out, I am omnipotent, I am one, etc., um, they have to first be marked, plugged into a linguistic system in which they could issue something like that, in which they could state, for instance, to the slave, now bake me a cake, motherfucker. Language is already there. By the time the master rises up to cry out that they are impervious to all things linguistic, they are the master signifier, the father of signifiers. In order for them to say that, language has to be always already operative. That's what he's saying here. Prior to the promotion of any being, here we're talking about that of the master, by virtue of a singular one, a master who would occlude the fact that they're already marked by the one. Prior to all of this, what you're going to see is the effect of language already playing out. And so also with this objea, this cause of desire, this want to be. So behind the master's claim to be, there is this original constitutive want to be. That's what we're working with here. The master's discourse is the one that is in focus here in chapter 11. It's kind of a kind of blurry focus to start, but when you couple it with the discourse of the analyst, we really start making some progress here. So check out, I would say, for this discourse of the master, I like pages 152 to 153. So back up a couple of pages. And what you get here is some really nice riffs on the master, some plays on that word that capture what Lacan is doing here. And all with an eye towards the idea that at the level of consciousness and spoken discourse, you can be made one. So check out the bottom of 152. Why not use this respect in this respect, what can be designated in French by the homonym maître. Now, you can read this as master, but note at the bottom of the page, translator's footnote here. Maître is a construction of Lacan's. A homophonic with, is homophonic with maître, meaning master, having the grammatical form of a quasi-pronominal construction, it can be taken roughly as suggest to suggest being as an activity. Thus, I am being. I am one. So this is what he's doing. He's saying the metra I am one, I am being, is akin to the master 
the Maitre, who rises up and says, I'm the father of the signifiers. Now, I speak and you work, bitches, get it done. Lacan is being playful, but also, I think, pretty damn clever in how he's putting this. The master is the one who always cries up and stands up and cries, I am being. This unique signifier operates by means of its relation with what is already there, already articulated in such a way that we can only conceive of it against the presence of a signifier that is already there that I would say has always been there. What's the signifier he's talking about? Back up a sentence. It's from this that the maître signifier emerges, the master signifier emerges, but Lacan is writing it as the I am being signifier. So that's kind of what he's messing with here. It's at the bottom of page 152. It's a great little passage. The master signifier is the I am being signifier. I am a whole one. I am omnipotent. Think about that in relation to what we've been discussing around the truth of the master, namely the unconscious, but also the truth as it couples with the delta of impotence that Lacan introduces into all of his discourses between the two elements and the bottom level. There is the truth of the master, namely his impotence, and then there's what he claims when he introduces the maître signifier, the I am being signifier, namely its omnipotence that he is suggesting here. When this maître signifier, the I am being signifier emerges, and then he says, what's up with the second term? That comes up as well. This unique signifier operates by means of its relation with what is already there, already articulated in such a way that we can only conceive of it against the presence of a signifier that is already there and I would say has already been there. You know what he's talking about here? If the maître signifier, the I am being signifier, the master signifier is the S1, what's the signifier that was there long before him? long before this statement, long before the S1. You know what it is, my friends. It's the S2. The S2 is the question at stake here. The signifier that's there before and atop which, in relation to which, out of which the master signifier emerges. In effect, this unique signifier, this S1, this signifier of, quote, the master, write it as you wish. So what he's saying is you can write the S1 as the master signifier. You can write it as the signifier I am being, the maître signifier. All work the same way for him here. You can write it however you wish. This master signifier, this S1, is articulated to some part of a practice. Here's your S2. That it orders. Think of that also in terms of command. Not just organizes, but also commands then this practice is already shot through, woven through with what, to be sure, does not yet emerge from it, namely the signifying articulation. Here's his point again. Language and its effects, all of these signifying articulations and their effects are already there. And we locate this in the field of S2. The latter is at the heart of all knowledge, namely the S2, as a field of signifying articulations that are already there even if it could only have been approached through know-how. Now here he's referring to S2, 
and the discourse of the master as the position of knowledge. And the type of knowledge he's referring to here is multiple. There's the know-how, the savoir-faire of the slave who knows how to do shit. And then that knowledge is pressed into work. It is made to work. It is put to work. And this begins the gradual, sometimes all too quickly, dispossession of that knowledge, and with it, access to jouissance. Remember, knowledge is a means to jouissance. The slave's know-how is put to work when the slave obeys the master's command. And that work results in the production of widgets, wobbles, lathhouses, you name it. All these little object causes of desire. Play around with this and don't forget the work we've done with little i, little a, in the context of the commodity. All of these, according to Lacan, with the help of philosophers turned universities, can be commodified, algorithmically distributed, to masters for consumption and thus surplus enjoyment. This is all what we've been talking about. He wants to implicate Descartes in this process. Rest assured, reading on page 153, we find the trace of the initial presence of this knowledge where it is already some distance off by virtue of having been fiddled with for a long time in what is called the philosophical tradition. A judgment about the grip of, that the signifier of the master has on this knowledge. Woe unto the philosophical tradition and all of its fiddling with the products of slaves' work and labor, to the extent that labor ever yields a product, and I'm not sure it does. Let's not forget that when Descartes asserts his I am thinking, therefore I am, the cogito ergo sum, it's by virtue of having for some time sustained this, uh, his I am thinking by calling into question putting into doubt this knowledge that I am saying is fiddled with, which is the knowledge already elaborated at length through the master's intervention. So there is something very fundamental about the master's discourse, and it has this agency to it relative to being and lack. The master stands up and cries out, I am everything. I'm the father of the signifiers, S1, 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 S1. I'm the master. And I always say the same thing. I am. This is kind of Hegel's point in the chapter on lordship and bondage. The master says, I am. Therefore, you are not. It's kind of like black and white thinking. I am the master. Therefore, you either are a slave or another master who can best me, in which case I become the slave. This is the part of the dilemma of the master for Hegel. Everyone is either a master about to enslave them, or a slave who is about to enter into bondage relative to this master. Either way, the master never finds any friends. This motherfucker is lonely. He has no equal. He is always either on the verge of being subordinated to another master, or finding somebody else to join his population of slaves. But he knows no equal, and he's willing to die to preserve this possibility in the Hegelian imagery here. 
What Lacan wants to point out is that this black and white thinking around I am being is endemic to the discourse of the master, and it also hooks into the discourse of the philosopher around this I am thinking, this I think, therefore I am. And Lacan wants to implicate once more the discourse of philosophy and the discourse of the master. He wants these two to be together, and he wants to show how they feed off each other. That is precisely what we learned at the very start of this seminar, when Lacan brings up the discourse of the master and shows how the philosopher helps by fiddling with the work and the production of the slave in the production of a commodity that can then be distributed to the master for their consumption. This is what's up. He's still on this topic. And rest assured, where the master and the university are brought into alignment in Lacan's thought, he can then suggest the hysteric and the analyst exist in a different sphere, a more productive sphere. So you've got these two columns in which the four discourses can be sorted, and not unproductively, although a little bit rudimentarily, I think you can still make a good use of that, that sorting that he starts working through in Seminar 16. Which brings us, of course, to the discourse of the analyst. Back to page 152. You get a couple of really nice statements on this topic. Lacan says in about the middle of the page on 152, the analytic practice is, properly speaking, initiated by this master's discourse. So what we're talking about here around the metra signifier, the master signifier that states, I am being, therefore you are shit. Now get to work and make me other piles of shit that I can then consume. The whole discourse of the master and the university and the production of commodities that we've been over in service to understanding how surplus enjoyment works. What Lacan is saying here is that all of that is an occasion for analytic practice. The analytic practice is, properly speaking, initiated by all of this. How does that work? What does that look like? What does he mean? A few lines up, he starts to explain himself. He's talking about the little object A that emerges in the bottom right-hand quadrant of the discourse of the master. The master commands the slave to use their know-how to work toward the production of a commodity that with the help of the university, the master can then annihilate, purchase, so forth, and eventually throw away. And here what we've got is the analyst somehow jumping into that process, where and how. Check it out. This is where the analyst positions himself. In other words, in that lower right-hand quadrant of the discourse of the master. This is where the analyst positions himself. Now think to the discourse of the analyst. You know what this looks like. The analyst positions himself in the position of the product of the master's discourse or address to the slave. He positions himself as the cause of desire, as this affect, obja, as the cause of desire, in other words, as this want-to-be that the master just can't accept for themselves. This may be why the master is so averse to desire and is always seeking slaves who can provide him with the commodities he wishes to annihilate before he has to experience them as lacking. 
What the master wants is to have no desire at all. But isn't that a fucking tragic way to be? Certainly a depressing one. The analyst positions himself as the cause of desire. So the position from which the analyst speaks, the upper left-hand quadrant of the discourse of analysis, this objea, is that of the cause of, you might say, the master's desire. And it can be a desire not to desire. It can be a wanting not to know anything about how shit is made and certainly about how they themselves are made. This is what we mean by the ignorance of the master, right? The master is completely ignorant of how their stuff is made. They don't know how things work. They only want to know that things work. But they're also, as we've established, ignorant of how they themselves as masters are made. And that's the work that we're trying to elaborate here. It's by being marked one through the unary trait, through castration, and thus rendered a barred subject, that the master's discourse is occasioned. In order to rise up and say, I am one, you have to first be marked one by the unary trait in this playful way that Lacan is messing with, the one. Lacan's point here around the analyst is that the analyst steps in to the pile of shit that is produced by the master's address to the slave and positions himself as the cause of desire. This is an eminently unprecedented position, Lacan says, if not a paradoxical one that is validated by practice. So the master stands up and says, I am being, I am omnipotent, I know everything, I am, therefore you are not and should get to work for me. And the analyst replies, if you might think about it this way, you are desirous. You are not impotent. You are not omnipotent, but impotent. You are not all-knowing, but motherfucker, you are castrated. You are, in fact, ignorant of just how castrated you are, especially when you tell us how much you fucking know. So the discourse of the master couples really nicely with that of the university at this point. The master says, I am being, and the analyst replies, you are lack, you are desirous, and furthermore, I am your cause. I am your cause. That is an interesting position to assume. The analyst assumes the position of the cause of the master's desire and speaks right at that opening in the existence of the master that shows the master's statements to be effects of a primary cause that is split subjectivity. That's why in the discourse of the analyst, you see the arrow of addressivity pointed from little object A to the barred subject. We'll chart this out in a minute. Now, here's how this might look if we were to just plot it out in a kind of playful way. The discourse of the master commanding the slave to work and to produce something. In steps the analyst. Now, which object does the analyst play here? Lacan on page 152 is saying as the cause of desire. Go back and review our lecture on the discourse of the analyst and you will see all the permutation of A's, including little A's, in the progression that the analyst takes. And whether we're talking about... Um, 
the little a as a rejected piece of shit or the big A as the subject's supposed to know. It would seem that what Lacan is referring to here is the analyst stepping into one of those early objets as the cause of the other's desire. In any case, it's the same designation in the discourse of the analyst. The discourse of the analyst then speaks to the truth that the discourse of the master can't bear. I write it in pink so you can see it here. The discourse of the analyst is addressed at the truth or the cause of the master's agency. And in this moment, the master has an opportunity. If the master allows himself to be hystericized, he can produce a new S1, a new narrative, a resubjectivization, an acceptance of their barred subjectivity and all this kind of bullshit that we've talked about around the discourse of the hysteric. That is not often what happens, though. As you've heard me say in this series before, the S1 that can be produced from the analyst's address to the unconscious truth of the master can also be a reinstatement of the discourse of the master, where the master then rises up again as an ignorant master signifier and cries out to the analyst, Oh, you think you know everything. So you think you're the master. Look at you with your clever little fucking trick of trying to speak to what you believe to be the crack in my being. Aren't you a fucking clever one? You see what I'm saying? The master doesn't die that easily, which is why you see this cycle repeating. In this moment, when the master resurfaces and addresses the analyst as S2, the analyst himself or herself now has a choice. If you accept being addressed as an S2, it's not just that you become the slave of the master. That's not the more interesting point here. To embrace and accept the master's address to you as an S2 is to slip from the discourse of analysis to that of the university. If you then respond from the position of S2, you are now no longer implementing the discourse and the practice of psychoanalysis. You have now slipped into the professorial shit that's popping on your screen right now. You are now in the position of an S2. This is a good place, a fine place, a standard place for analytic experience to begin. You've heard me refer to this before as that of the subject supposed to know. This is also the analyzant who shows up and says, look at you with all your fancy diplomas, all of your degrees, all of the baubles, widgets, and lath houses on your desk. Doesn't that just tell me that you are a keeper of so many types of capital? I pay $400 an hour, so you must have pronounced economic capital. You have all of these statues from Oceania on your shelf. Hot damn, you must be a keeper of great cultural capital as well. And listen to you and your $20 words about the crack in my subjectivity. Ooh, that's fancy. Look at all the linguistic capital you also wield. The analyzan can show up and treat the master Treat the analyst as a kind of master by saying, you're the omnipotent, omniscient one. You're the one who knows everything. And the trick is to not respond from that position of omniscience, but instead to begin the gradual fall from that chair of philosophy and of religion 
of God down into the rejected rock, the piece of shit that is indeed the objet a that the analyst should aim for when they speak, according to Lacan, as I'm reading this seminar. So you've got the master occasioning the analyst, the analyst does his or her thing, but then that awakens the master again. It can, at least. And the analyst then is threatened to slip into the discourse of the university by responding from the position of this S2. Now, something can be produced from this address from the resurgent master. It is another objet a, and the analyst gets this second option. The second option that would allow them to return to their first move and again speak to the split subjectivity of the master. So instead of accepting the positionality of an S2 and thus slipping into the discourse of the university, the master also has, or the analyst also has this opportunity of occupying once more this paradoxical position of the cause of the master's de desire. <clears throat> I think this is a great way to understand how the master and the analyst interact. It's precisely what Lacan is suggesting for us here. The master gives the analyst an opportunity to show up as objet a, but that opportunity can awaken a resurgence of mastery that tempts the analyst through the discourse of the master into the position of the university. But that in turn also produces a new objet a, that the analyst can choose instead of that S2 as the position from which they speak, as their agential position, and thus stay firmly within the discourse of the analyst. That's partly why Lacan is queuing up the discourse of the master and its relationship to the discourse of the analyst. I think he wants to show again and again how the discourse of the master continually tries to push the analyst into the position of the university but can't help but at the same time always create an opportunity structure for the discourse of analysis to be what it is, namely an objet a addressing the truth that the master can't bear about themselves. In other words, that they are not one, despite what their maître signifier suggests, that they are not one, but instead marked one, divided, barred, split, subject to the defiles of the signifier, just like the rest of us. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.